We are in our uh, fourth Sunday of Advent here, looking at an incredible uh, series called Christmas Lights. And uh, we're going to be transitioning into a new series beginning December 27th. You can grab a Bible reading plan uh, near the entrances here at the Worship Center. And you also have access on our website and through our app. We're going to take a look at uh, the domino effect and look at a study in Colossians. And this is going to be a church-wide study. So we encourage you to get into a life group or band and utilize this uh, incredible, just in, these incredible devotional readings and the Bible reading plan in your time together. Can you believe we are six days away from Christmas? Can you believe it? Are you ready? Are you ready? I want this... I want this on the back screen of my cell phone. Now, Melissa put this up there for me. I want this on the back screen of my cell phone. I, I want somebody to show me how I can get that. <laughs> Be calm, folks. We're almost there. We are rounding third and heading for home on this fourth Sunday of Advent. We talk a lot about Advent here at Anderson Hills. We light uh, candles each Sunday to proclaim lessons about its meaning. What does Advent mean? Well, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning appearing or coming. At Advent, we look back at Jesus' first coming, and then we look forward to his second coming. We get in touch with the felt experience of living in the in-between time, as we just heard proclaimed at the Advent candle reading. We give thanks for what God did at the manger when Christ was born. But we wait and watch for Jesus' return to finish what he started. And we do this with waiting and watching in the midst of life, in the journey of life, in life's challenges and trials. You know, life is full of the unexpected Sometimes, no matter how carefully we plan ahead, life sneaks up on us sometimes and smacks us on the back of the head with reality. Therefore, we need to live in a state of preparedness for what may come. I love Bill Watterson's cartoon series, Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin, in one of the cartoons, enters the room one morning dressed in a large, he has a large space helmet on a long cape, a flashlight in one hand, and a baseball bat in the other. What's up today, his mother looks, as she looks at his extraordinary costume. Nothing so far, Calvin answers. So far, she questions. Well, you never know, replies Calvin. Something could happen today. And as Calvin leaves, his mother starts thinking about Calvin's helmet, the cape, the flashlight, the baseball bat. And the final caption shows her thinking, I need a suit like that. We all need a suit like that, don't we? Life sends us challenges. We often call these learning experiences. And sometimes these learning experiences are very difficult. Sometimes they're painful, they hurt. We learn all right. We take our lumps, and that's life. But we better be prepared for the future 
lumps in the now. The school of hard knocks, as it's been said. One of the best examples that I recently read about is a mother of a mother preparing her young for the ups and downs of life. Uh, ups and downs of life comes from Gary Richmond's book, A View from the Zoo. I highly recommend it. In chapter one, Richmond gives us an amazing look at the birth of a baby giraffe. Now, we all know and recognize giraffes by their long necks, but we also recognize giraffes by their very long legs. The body of a mother giraffe is some 10 feet from the crown. She doesn't lower her body, believe it or not, when she's giving birth. When the calf is born, he or she immediately falls that distance, sometimes 8 to 10 feet from the ground, and lands on its back. 10 feet is a long way to fall. Long way to fall coming into the world. Then after falling on its back, the newborn calf rolls over on its stomach with its legs tucked under. At this point, the mother giraffe does something extraordinary. She waits about a minute, and then she kicks the newborn calf head over heels and sends it sprawling. Talk about tough love. If the baby giraffe doesn't get up immediately on its legs, she kicks it again. And then she kicks it again. What a way to come into the world, from the womb to kickboxing. <laughs> Finally, the little giraffe stands on its legs for the very first time, very wobbly. But then he's ready to follow her and the rest of the herd. Please understand, the mother giraffe is not being cruel to her baby. Quite the contrary. She knows the lions, the hyenas, the leopards would love to make a quick snack of that baby giraffe. She needs her baby calf to get to its feet as quickly as possible so it can keep up with the herd. And kicking him is her way of protecting her young one from the predators. Sometimes we may also feel that as though life is, as, as we have gotten on our feet in life, life turns around and suddenly knocks us back down. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? The next time that happens to you, I hope you can think of the baby giraffe. Life has its knockdowns, but it may be as simply a strengthening for an unknown future or a readiness to meet life's challenges and ultimately the most difficult challenge that we can experience is passing on to eternity from death into death. Life is full of the unexpected. None of us is totally prepared, but it's important that we all, we can do all we can do. We live in a very fragile world. Life is fragile. I remember specifically when Benjamin drove off in my car with his new driver's license. It's kind of a helpless feeling. I had that feeling of helplessness, but I trusted that I had prepared him, that the driver's instructed, instructors had prepared him, and his tests had prepared him to drive off. And hopefully I, my insurance had prepared the way too. I know the risk of letting him go. Healthy parents don't hover. They want their kids to live 
and experience living in this tough world. And there's difficulties. There seems like there's preparations in every stage of life. I know in my stage of life, and a couple of health challenges that I've had this year that, that were really difficult, tough to navigate through. And I know and I can identify with some baby boomers that I've been talking to. It seems like more and more of my friends are, are dealing with illnesses, whether it be cancer or COVID or, or heart issues or, or other illnesses. And you begin to see more and more of your friends pass away. And you wonder, and you're looking over your shoulder, can I be next? And nowadays, it seems like family relationships are so fragile. And from what I see, estrangement in families and friendships seems to be running rampant at an all-time high. Family life is fragile. There's no guarantees of successes or happiness for any of us. We need to be prepared for whatever is sent our way. So we have to enter into a mindset, and Advent does that, a mindset of preparedness, of being prepared. Jesus talked a lot about preparedness, especially when he was referring to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. In fact, many of his parable contents was on kingdom of God readiness. One of the most famous readiness passages or chapters is Matthew chapter 25. It's filled with waiting and expectancy, but also warnings about being prepared. Let's look at the first 13 verses, and you're probably familiar with this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, Five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise one, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all were drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, to understand this parable which is about a wedding, you have to understand the Jewish wedding and the stages and processes of that. A Jewish wedding consisted of three parts. First was the engagement. Marriages most often were arranged by the father's, uh, the bride of the father, or the father's bride and the groom. The groom's family provided money to the bride's father, and that money was put into like a trust 
to be used by the bride in the event of the husband backing out or the husband on uh, uh, sudden death. The engagement was like a contract in marriage in which the couple had little involvement, direct involvement. The second stage was the betrothal. This was an actual marriage ceremony where the bride and groom exchanged vows before family and friends and the marriage was considered to be official even though the marriage was not physically consummated. Now the betrothal could last for many months, sometimes up to a year. But as far as society and the law was concerned, the couple was legally married. That's actually the stage Mary and Joseph were in, the betrothal. The third step was the celebration, the wedding feast. And this is the focus of Jesus' parable. At a certain time, the bridegroom, accompanied by his attendants, would proceed through the streets, usually at night, to the bride's home to claim his bride. And together, the bride and the groom and their attendants would then parade through the streets, proclaiming that the wedding feast was about to begin. They would go back to the groom's house, for the wedding feast, and the physical consummation would take place in the marriage. The procession was usually at night. Lamps and torches were used by the wedding party to light their way uh, through the street to attract attention to bystanders. The air would be thick with expectancy. All would celebrate the festivities outside the home as they paraded through the streets. Now you notice in the parable... That everyone was to be equipped, was to be ready to trim their lamps. These lamps were long poles with, with drenched, oil-drenched rags on top of them. And when lit, they would burn brightly. But they had to have an additional oil uh, to add to that flame in order to keep it burning. Everyone in the procession was expected to carry his or her own torch. If you were without a torch, you were considered a wedding party crasher. It was assumed that you weren't a part of the wedding party, and therefore you were not allowed to go into the groom's house for the feast. Now we see the difference between the foolish bridesmaid and the wise bridesmaids. It's very simple, my friends. The wise were prepared. The foolish were not. Now, it was not that the foolish bridesmaid were not aware that the bridegroom, bridegroom was coming. No, everybody knew it. It's a matter of being concerned about the future. It's a matter of having oil, extra oil. Maybe they thought that they could run down to the oil shop at any time they wanted. Or maybe they thought they could borrow oil from someone else if the shops were closed. We are not told why. They were negligent. We are just told that they were. They ran out of one thing they needed to get into the wedding feast, and that was oil. When I was a youth pastor, a very vivid memory, I would teach our song called, uh, teach our kids a song called Sing Hosanna. I don't know if you know it, but it goes like this. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, 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 keep me burning to the break of day. Sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna. And then we wave our arms back and forth and sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. That song is about this parable. 
Folks, I don't know about you, but I want plenty of oil. I want plenty of oil readiness for anything that occurs in life, but especially for the return of our King, Jesus Christ. Now, the foolish bridesmaid tried to borrow oil from the wise ones, but they could not. It's not because the wise bridesmaids were selfish or hard-hearted. They knew if they loaned them their oil, no one would make it into the wedding feast because there wasn't enough oil to keep everyone filled up to get into the house. But there's a greater principle here, and I thought about it. That's good that I thought about it. (laughs) There are some things you cannot borrow. You can borrow flour, sugar, or a couple eggs from your neighbor. You can borrow money, but you can't borrow salvation. You can't. Even though you're saved by the grace of God, you cannot become another person's savior. Even though you've received grace from God, you cannot impart the grace of God. I can give my physical life for you to save you physically, but I can't give my eternal life to you. It's mine. That's what the lesson is about Christ's return with the wise and the foolish bridesmaid. That's the lesson about his return to earth at the end of time. We have no idea when that may be. We don't. It may be thousands of years away. It could be today. Still, Christ tells me to be prepared. It comes down to our own individual preparation. You know, soon... Well, they're already waiting and watching. Our children are waiting with expectancy for Santa. Santa. You know what? They're not waiting with fear and dread, are they? They're waiting with joyful hearts. Like the bridesmaids who are prepared to receive the, bride, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, with joy and celebration. Why? Because for Christians, we find a celebration of eternal life, something to look forward to with joy and anticipation and expectancy. It gives us hope to face the future unafraid, my friends. It gives us assurance. Those of us who have this hope, they, as the scriptures say, they purify themselves just as Christ is pure, and it's done by faith. It troubles me that so many Christians look toward the future with, with doubt and dread. It's not supposed to be that way with us. We're a different kind of people. We have victory in our future because we belong to Him. We belong to Him. The coming of the Lord, whether at Christmas or at Christ's return on the last day, ought to be something that Christ followers look forward to. We ought to be like little children whose father loves them very much, but he's gone on a long business trip. And now they can't wait for their daddy to come home. 
They're peeking out the window, waiting. I don't know if you've been there and done that, guys, but it's an incredible thing to see your kid running out to the door, Daddy, Daddy, and they have their shoes on and their coats on and their gloves on because they're expectant and ready to greet you. They're ready to run outside and leap into those arms. It'll never let them go. We have to be ready to receive God like that. This kind of expectancy helps in those moments when you think you're going to drop dead. And I've been there. I've had a panic attack. I've been like, I'm going to die. It gives us confidence to run into those arms and never let him go. It also prepares you so that if some tragedy entered your life, you'll be able to ride out the storm because your prayer life, your faith life was filled with that confidence that you knew you had a God that walked beside you and sometimes carry you in life. Do you know the hymn, Joy to the World? One of the most famous Christmas carols. I asked Dr. Danny Stover, our contemporary, or not contemporary, our traditional worship director, I said, give me a hymn. Give me a carol that's about the second coming of Christ. He said, joy to the world. All of it's about that. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. We sing that with a joyful expectancy of his second coming, my friends. It's a Christmas hymn about preparation, joy complete, joy coming into the world, that there's final victory and the consummation of all things. As United Methodists, we believe in a methodical way of knowing God's grace and how we experience God's grace, and there's different expressions of that. And we come to a term called glorifying grace. This is what awaits all who have been saved by the grace of God. And one day their soul will have a glorified body in heaven. They live forever in the presence of God. And all God's people from the nations over all the earth and the generations of history and the eternal in the perfect kingdom of God. Free from the presence and power of sin and darkness. Folks, we take nothing with us into the eternal. It's God's grace. It's God's grace that gets us there. Love and compassion and tender care by God takes us into that reality. And it's all because the ministry of Jesus Christ, the light of eternity, will bring nothing, will lack nothing, because God, the God of grace, will provide for all of our needs forever. We'll be in total love, light, and care. So what does this reality look like? The Apostle John gives us a very detailed description of our glorified reality in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at this together. And this is, I, I read this all the time at funerals. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the, seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did you notice the wedding language again? Bride, bridegroom. I have to say there's nothing, I don't think there's anything as fun as a wedding and a wedding reception. This guy likes to party. I do, especially at a wedding. I love to celebrate the love and uniting of those two families. It's a bomb. It's incredible. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. We all will be united with him. It's that metaphor that that we see that has sacrifice and total love and the promise of God's presence. We go where God dwells. What's the environment like? John describes it. No pain. No death, no mourning. Did you notice that he mentions tears and crying twice? No more tears and crying. Everything in the past, with all its hurts, its, its habits and hang-ups, will be gone. They'll be swept away in this reality. So how do we prepare? What do we do? I want to talk to you about one word this morning. It's the word surrender. Surrender. That word probably doesn't stir up a lot of positivity. <laughs> Surrendering is a sign of failure in the military. Giving up everything. Defeat. However, it's not like that in our Christian vocab, my friends. It's an absolute victory. It's about believing in Jesus Christ who saves us, who has the victory. It's about letting go of self and, and self-power to, to try to muster ourselves by the uh, bootlaces and try to live in this world on our own. No. It's about letting go of that, following God's will in our Christian living. We surrender out of love and relationship, not out of fear. Our lives and our personalities become infused with God's provision for living in this world victoriously. What holds you back from surrendering to Jesus Christ? What is there in your life that you still cling, cling on to and control? Is it trusting? Do you need to trust in God for the first time or trust in God again? Is it hurt and pain from your past that keeps you from doing that? Now, surrendering, it's not easy. Let's face it. Deep inside we think and are afraid that God may take what we love best or what we value best. I want to tell you that's a lie from the enemy. God wants the best and wants to enhance the best within us. Especially his love and the faith we have in him and trusting in him. God is love. And what he gives is good to his children. 
If something is blocking us from experiencing God, he may ask us to release that, which doesn't belong because he says, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke, learn from me. And that one is Jesus Christ, the light of eternity. In him, we have light and guidance to lead us through the valley, the dark valley of the shadow of death. We have full confidence to face this world with victory and without fear. Today, this fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of preparation, prepare with all of who you are, my friends. Be ready to meet your king and be ready whatever the world throws at you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for this journey called Advent. We see in it your desire to come alongside your children in a very powerful way and help us to live in this world unafraid and be ready to face any challenge, but also be ready to meet you at any time, whether in life and in our death or whether in your second coming, Lord. May we have this full trust that everything is going to be all right in you, that you're in control, that you have victory. We love you, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit helping us to prepare. We pray this in the name of the victorious one, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.